They were drifters who had no past. It don't matter which way I'm coming from. It's which way I'm going to. And didn't care about the future. We're going nowhere. Fast. They were free spirits. I ain't never seen nothing like it for in my life. Who few understood. Candy for the agency in Chicago. Is it official if you only count from three? Uh, probably from not. Five? I mean, this probably might be not. an unofficial podcast. Eugene here in Toronto for the agency. <laughs> I don't know why I like unofficially. I like three, two, one. I just like it. But I think five <laughs> is good because you get a little more time to adjust. That's probably a good thing. I don't know what's more official. Okay, you just took me aback. That's all. Oh, I'm sorry. I could go action. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm more used to saying is action cut okay. well let me tell you a story yeah this goes back to when i used to live in a, a warehouse in toronto you know it very well it's yes. the one we we knew and loved called the uh the casket factory right the coffin factory at niagara and tecumseh because it was in fact a, a casket factory for many years mm. before they closed up there and moved to i think oakville Mm. Um, and my studio was uh, at one point the showroom. It had the best floors, <laughs> um, but it was a rickety old building. I'm amazed it hasn't burnt down. Right. Uh, it's slated for for redevelopment. Sure, condos. Um, yeah, they're going to actually. I think they're going to. Um, they're going to keep the shell that U-shaped shell of the building and build like this great big monolith in what was the parking lot. Okay. Right. And so they're making some superficial effort to keep the architectural integrity of the old Toronto industry. Right. And they'll probably dig a hole for park underground parking. I imagine. Yeah. Who knows yeah, what, who knows. what the heck they'll do. Why did I bring that up anyway? What well, are we because talking you about? were going to tell me a story about five, four, three, two, one. What was I going to tell you a story about? I don't know. You said I've got a story for you. Well, you know, we were talking and I had a story and then I started talking (laughs) about the building and I have no idea what story I was going to tell you. It'll come back later on. Yes, it will. And then I'll interrupt everything for the story. That's right. That's okay. Hey, we have mail. Oh, great. We have mail from a friend of the podcast, uh, Trisha. We have two emails. Okay. All right. Hi, Candy and Eugene. Your agent, Trisha here, from the other side of the cheese curtain. <laughs> I recently upped my game at work and acquired a pair of wire, wireless e- earbuds. I think that's what she means, wireless yeah. earbuds. The first day, I started catching up on some episodes of the Agency Podcast, and boy, has my work life changed. We aren't supposed to have earbuds at my place of employment, which shall remain nameless, LOL, but everyone else is doing it, so I gave it a try. Good. Podcast is so amazing. It makes my day fly by. I'm not stuck inside my own head and dreading the meaningless tasks all day. That's our job, is to give your life meaning. Uh, I do find myself talking back to you, so that may not be healthy, uh, but it, that's good, actually, to talk back to us because you might disagree with us and uh, and we might have to have a fight about it. 
Great, great. Um, but I do so enjoy being a part of your conversations and feeling connected again. Thanks Aww. for continuing your work and for being so open and fun. Love you. Oh, wow. that's What great. a nice email. I yeah, really thanks. appreciate that. Thanks, Trisha. And there's a follow-up. Oh. Wondering if you are fans of Les Stroud. In general, as a musician, filmmaker, outdoorsman, survivor man, asking for a friend. Love, Trisha. Oh, now I'm surprised she knows him. I'm kind of take. I haven't thought about Les Stroud for a long time. He's he's the guy who would go out in the woods and and like serve survive and film himself and right. in in those situations. Survivor right? Man was the name of his um, Canadian produced TV show. I think it was Canadian produced, and it may and it had a crossover to the states. So I I think I am even surprised that she knows about it. But I guess it did go bigger than just Canada. Um, I absolutely love Les Stroud, and in fact, I wrote him a fan letter one time. Wow. Um, I never heard back from him. I you don't, don't have a copy of it, do you? No, I don't. I, it was an original handwritten fan letter. I didn't keep a copy. I didn't think about it. I've only written the smallest amount of fan mail ever in my life. One was to Catherine. Oh, wow. It's so funny. that I, I just went blank on her last name, the director, uh, who won an Oscar for Hurt Locker. I wrote her in the 80s because I'd heard a rumor she was going to make um, a William Gibson movie and I wrote her a fan letter I was very like excited about this and I never heard back from her either <laughs> and I well, think that... I was I was really fascinated by I think I had used the term matrix in my in my letter to her um, I'd written Paula um, her who's a very famous agent I'd written I, I want to say Paula Wagner and um, I talked about a Matrix thing, and this was before the movie The Matrix. So when the movie The Matrix came out, I noticed it right away because Matrix was a key word in my vocabulary back then, which is just odd. I don't know if you have words that are really, you're very involved in their philosophical structure or what they might mean or poetics or something, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wrote Les Stroud a letter and he had resided, he resided in Huntsville. And I guess I thought maybe we'd go out for a beer or something. I don't know what I was thinking. I knew he and his family lived up there. I don't remember what I said. And I'm kind of horrified. I'm horrified by both of those fan mails. Okay. I have to ask. Yeah. What other celebrities have you written to? I think that's it. And then I wrote Obama too. You wrote Obama. About homelessness. And he did write me back. I have a letter from uh... President Obama. Did you write the guy who directed uh, Highway 61? Did you write him? No, but I sent him a book of poetry. Oh, okay. Well, that's the same thing. Yeah, yeah I it knew is it. The same I knew thing. that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which I think it was also your poems too. Oh, okay. I think it might have been some kind of collaboration we had done together, your artwork or something. And he wrote oh, back okay. a really nice card going, Zingo, Bruce McDonald. <laughs> Zingo. I yeah, like yeah, it was really nice. And it was a card that was like, Based on all the things that happened in the year he was born, the card had like pictures of cars and newspaper clippings. It was kind of cool. It was very thoughtful. I think it is very smart when people write back their fans in a lot of ways. Um, the guy who wrote Chuck Palonky, uh, Chuck Palanuk, he sends people things. He gets a lot of fan mail. He wrote Fight Club. And he sends out gifts all the time. Um, he sends out bars of soap. Because soap plays, you know, soap has a thing in Fight Club, right? They make soap out of the um, rejected yes. fat taken out of um, women's bodies for uh, cosmetic surgery. 
Yeah, so um, he sends them, he'll send his fans weird things. It's kind of cool. And that way, it's like he doesn't have a stalker. He almost is like the stalker. So he doesn't get that stalker relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. you know, well, uh, you know, Sheila wrote Jack Shadbolt once and uh, invited him for lunch, and we ended up right. having lunch with Jack Shadbolt. That's right. Um, but uh, they don't always write back because no. you know celebrities are busy, um, you know, Definitely. preening themselves and like that. Well, they're, yeah, they're busy working. They work long hours. And working, and, yeah. And also, if you get what if you get something like a million letters, you can't write them back. You just can't. That would be I depressing. I think. That you couldn't be able write to back. write people back. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how. I think that I'm assuming if you get a million fan mails or, and now, probably Taylor, most of them are the same. Taylor Swift is um, well known for answering people's DMs and staying in contact and having a relationship with the fans. I think they might go out after the show and stuff like that. So, well, you know, I think that's probably a really smart <laughs> thing to do cool. in today's cool. uh, yeah. today's world. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I've got a bunch of ingredients on the kitchen table right now. I was going to try and make this family bread recipe. Well, hang on. Yeah. We we're not done with Les Stroud yet. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, maybe. Well, you might be done. Well, oh, I, I, just, just, I just wanted to say that, well, I was never that interested in Survivor <laughs> Man. And I had no idea he was a, a musician or a, anything like that. Um, but um, I started to watch... About a year ago, I started to watch canoe trip videos, which are the same kind of thing as the Survivor Man yeah. videos. And actually, there's a crossover because some of them are bushcraft uh, videos. Uh, but uh, they document, there's people out there who document their canoe trips. And, <laughs> and they go to great trouble to, to do this. Sometimes they'll have two GoPros mounted on their canoes, one on the front, one on the back, and another GoPro um, on their head. Right. And they do things like they'll send up a drone <coughs> to do the drone shot in the middle of nowhere, and um, they'll uh, they'll stop on shore and set up a tripod with a camera, yes. and then they'll go canoeing away so that they could have the shot of them canoeing away, and then they'll come back and, and gather up their equipment. Right. So I started to watch these because... Um, I was planning this trip with East Texas Red to go to Quetico. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of Quetico videos. And I thought maybe I could find uh, videos that cover the same route or part of the same <laughs> route at, that we're going. So we could actually see the portages and right. that kind of thing. And for a brief while, I got kind of addicted to these. And I watched... <laughs> Dozens of them. <laughs> dozens of them. Yeah. And some of them are like 12 parts. You oh know, my they'll, gosh. They, they'll film everything. And are some you of it do is. going to do that on your trip? It's, no, I'm not going to do that, actually. I've actually mm -hmm. decided specifically not to do that. I don't, oh. I don't want, I want to enjoy my trip for the trip and not okay. for being a, a documentary filmmaker of right. my trip right. for right. other people. Right. right. So I, I'm not mm -hmm. going to do that. Uh, but I watched him for quite a while. And then recently I was watching one of them. And one of the features of almost all of these is <laughs> Buddy has uh, his GoPro on his head and he has his canoe on his head and he's walking along the, uh, the, the portage trail and you hear, <sighs> 
as he's walking along and you hear like the bush crunching around him and and like that and there's a long time spent walking on these portage trails more time than you really want to spend because in fact the portage trails are are best thought of in distant memory once you've achieved them Right. So I I kind of backed away from some of those, although I was watching one the other night and uh, Sheila came by and she said, still watching those, are you? Right. Somebody else's trip, you know. <laughs> Funny. Um, so I, I did... Um, I did kind of get involved with that sort of personal documentary uh, for a while, just mm-hmm. watching and mm-hmm. and being like a voyeur and other people's mm. uh, trips. And what I found most interesting is what they chose to include and what they chose not to include. Mm-hmm. You know, some people get a little bit artsy and they'll mm-hmm. like have like 30 seconds of a butterfly or an insect or a snapping turtle or, or like that. But right. remarkably, there are tremendous, there's a tremendous amount of video footage out there of walking down a portage trail and lighting fires. Those are the two big okay. things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think you know, that's pretty relaxing to watch. Well, it is. Um, there's, there's one guy out there. He calls his channel, the pursuit of passion. And this guy <laughs> is a really expert whitewater canoeist. And he goes to places just in the middle of nowhere, um, way, way, way up north. Uh, and he looks for, for rivers, him and his buddy, and they, they look for rivers that have a ton of whitewater. And watching this guy and his buddy maneuver rapids is really actually quite something because it's something at that level I would be terrified to do. Right. You know, these right. rapids are heavy duty and there's big rocks and they have um, canoes without keels, uh, whitewater canoes that you can maneuver <laughs> yeah. uh, very, very quickly. And they just miss rocks by inches. It's fascinating to see uh, to a certain point. And after a while, it's like, oh, yeah, another rapids. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. Um Survivor Man, he always had all these great hacks where he would problem solve. I think that's why I liked it so much. Mm-hmm. I like the idea, I, you know, I didn't want to go by myself, but I, I liked all this, the um, problem solving. It's a lot of fun. I, I haven't watched him in years. I think he's doing it now with his kids or some new show with his, his, his family. I'm not sure. And I think he lives off the grid in Huntsville, oh, if I remember okay. correctly. I don't know. I don't know now. It was a long time ago, but yeah, I definitely watched Les Stroud. So sure. Some of the canoe tripping videos are also, yeah. um, they're also solo trips. Yeah. Um, and it's a curious thing, you know, to go out in the bush solo. Uh, yeah. It, it really is. Uh, first of all, it's a real problem if you hurt yourself. True. And that's the kind of thing which I used to never think of back when I was immortal. Yeah, but yeah, since I discovered my, my mortality, yes. I'm a lot more careful. <laughs> right. And I don't think, you know, I still do fly fishing trips on my own, but I don't do the crazy ass things I used to do, like, you know, walking way down rivers in the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, I just don't do it because... I was just suddenly faced with my mortality, you know. I almost tripped on a stick in the uh, in the, the Driggs River on the Upper Michigan Peninsula, and I thought, "That's no. it. 
If I had broken my leg in the bush, three or four miles from anywhere, there's no one to rescue me. No, you'd have to crawl back even with the pain. Yes. And and so that really changed me. I didn't want to do that anymore. I mean, I still like to be out. There's a, there's a certain rush about being out in the middle of nowhere. And that's part of what we're doing in Quetico. We're going into the back country. Right. But, you know, Mike and I both have some experience and we have each other to look after one right. another. I, I mean, he's Texas Red. Yeah, it's funny with the um, recording when they go solo and yet taking a camera because it's nice to have a witness. It's nice to have a testimony. It's nice to not feel alone. So in a weird way, that recording is like giving yourself a company. Uh, yes. You know? Yeah. And, you know, some people, I think, do it because they like the solitude. They like to be alone. And I get that. I, I really understand. I understand that. But um, when danger pokes its ugly head in um, and, and you become mortal, uh, you realize, maybe I don't want to do that. Right. And, you know, also a lot of the people, they are experienced enough to be able to do that. They're, they're, they're in like rock climbers. They're so insanely fit. They're, you know, they're not going to well, fall yes. off. But, but, you know, people who do the real daredevil sports, a remarkable percentage of them end up dying doing it. Well, that happens too. Yeah. What about the physicists that are mountain climbers, you know? It's so physicists funny that, that a, lot of phys- a lot of physicists are mountain climbers. It's like a occupational hobby. It's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. And, um, who knew? I had no yeah, idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's an, over and over again. I see it. Um, back to that bread I was going to make. Oh, yes. Got all these ingredients. No, no, it's just, I'm just jumping we, around. We need to have like music, like, okay, comfort okay, food comfort diner. Food music. Yeah, we da, could da, do da, that. We have to yeah. get a, a jingle or something. Right, right. Well, I just um, thought I'm going to make some bread. Um, Steaks family, when we got married, they have a little bread recipe they gave me that they give to anybody who comes into the family. So I put the ingredients out on the table this morning. I was going to try and make it before I talked to you, but I just couldn't get it together quick enough. So it's all laid out, mise en place, on the uh, kitchen table. So that's what I'm up to today, to today. And you know what? It takes eight cups of flour. I, I never make bread very seldom, so I forget how much flour it takes. You know, when I make bread, and serious bakers will scoff at me because serious bakers weigh all their ingredients. Right. And they do it religiously. And they do it because once they've achieved the perfect bread, they want to make it perfectly the same way every time. Yes. But as somebody who doesn't care about that, right. uh, I don't measure when I bake bread. Right. At all. Yeah. I'll, I'll start off with my water and my yeast and a little bit of salt, and then I'll, I'll add my flour until it's just so. Do you think it's unconscious you're measuring or is it just because you know how you like it to feel? It's so the feel. It's not, I don't, I don't think about measuring yeah. at all. So okay. um, I have, I've done it enough. So I have a real good sense of how to make it right. But if I, if I were running a bakery, I would do it by weighing the ingredients and doing it the same. Just well, because like all customers, if customers like a bread, they want the bread the next they day want, too. Yeah. They want the same bread they got. That's the whole deal with a restaurant, right? Is is if you go there to get a particular dish because it was delicious the last time, you want it exactly the same way. Yes. I could yes. never run a restaurant because I have no patience with doing anything the same way twice. Right, right, right. Yeah, no. It's I really, have the same, I, I have the same challenge in the studio as a painter. <laughs> you know, I, I really admire painters who can take 
um, a theme or a motif and explore that motif for several series or a year or a career. You know, I really admire painters who can do that because I'll do one and maybe I'll do one or two more. And if I'm not working on a group of paintings at the same time, that's where it'll stop because I have to reinvent my myself as a painter each and every time, which is why I think it's why I often work on several paintings at once because once you're working on several paintings, they all kind of feed off one another and they become a group. Right. And right? I like to work on several so one doesn't have tyranny over me. Well, that too, yes. Yeah. That's, that's <clears throat> a very good point. Um, do you put yeast in your bread? Well, yes. So that's normal. All bread has yeast unless it's unleavened, um, ancient bread. Well, there are lots of breads, lots of, let's call them quick breads, um, which don't have yeast, which instead have uh, baking powder and baking soda um, as leavening agents without using yeast. So for instance, when I make cornbread, I don't use yeast. Right. Right. Or if I make um, a fry bread for camping, like for Quetico, I'll be pre-mixing sure. flour and salt and cornmeal and um, uh, baking baking powder and a little baking soda in in a bag, and I can then just mix that with water and and fry it up like bannock, right? Yeah. Well, this uh, recipe is kind of weird. It's got eggs hot milk, scalded milk, yeast, um, a cup and a half of butter. Um, wow, that's lots yeah, it's of butter, got, eh? It's a lot of butter, yeah, So and, and eggs in it. So it's really um, a cakey type of bread. It's really delicious. So does it have a name, this kind of bread? Stag bread. Who? Stag bread. Stag bread. Yeah, his grandmother, it's... one of his great-grandmothers brought it from oh, Czechoslovakia. So oh, got it. So it's a family secret it's recipe. It's a family secret recipe. That's why I can't tell you everything in it. Oh, yes, but of course you have to make it uh, I am. and show and us I, pictures. And I plan on taking it up to, if it comes out today, because, you know, I, you never know if, if it's going to come out every time. I assume it will. We're going to drop off a loaf at their place today. But that's what I'm up to for cooking-wise for Comfort Food Cafe. Well, <laughs> I just have one thing, to, one thing to add to Comfort Food Diner, yeah. and that is, have you ever braised an egg? I don't know what that means. Fried an egg? No, braised an egg. Where? Well, let's say um, let's say you were going to braise some meat, and braising is yeah. braising is the process in which you take typically a tough cut of meat and you brown it and you put it in um, in like a Dutch oven or something like that mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. enough water to just get to the top of the the meat but not completely cover it and you put a lid on and you cook it either on the stovetop or in the oven at a low temperature for a long period of time i have not done that to an egg so if you're if you're ever braising some meat and i do that quite a bit i like braised meat a Mm -hmm. lot i'll braise chicken Uh, i did that uh, for you when you were in town Mm -hmm. um that's braising that that vietnamese chicken dish that i i make Um, but for beef or pork or whatever um you're braising for the last half hour, take a hard boiled egg, take the shell off it and drop an egg or two or three into your braising liquid. Oh, so it's almost like poaching. 
Well, the egg is already cooked. Oh, okay. So it's it's oh. already hard boiled. Oh, that's and then, why you said take the shell off, and that's unusual. That's right. Way. Okay, so, hard boiled egg. So you're right. going to take the hard boiled egg and you're mm. going to put it in the braising liquid, and every mm. now and then you'll turn it around a little. That bit. sounds delicious. Um, what happens is all that yummy braising liquid infiltrates the egg, right, and makes the egg super delicious and wonderful. Sounds good. Do you put that in the fridge or will you eat it with the meal? I'll eat it with the meal. Yummy. Typically. Yeah. yeah. And, Yum. you know, I, I discovered that, uh, you know, I talk about Vietnamese food a lot because I really love it and because I've experienced it there. Yeah. But um, that was part of a, of a breakfast food that, that I would get in Hanoi. You would get zoi, which is, or uh, soy, it's uh, sticky rice. And the sticky rice would, would come with a big chunk of braised pork and a braised egg hmm. um, and some slightly pickled cucumbers. And man, was it ever delicious. I had never before seen anyone braise an already cooked egg. Yeah, why, would, why would you cook it if it's cooked? That's what I right. thought. Um, until I tasted it and realized, well, because it's yummy. That's right. why. Right. Sounds delicious. I might try that. Um, you know what? On a much different note, okay. um, I watched a pretty interesting documentary, a crime, you know, one of those salacious, over-the-top, um, dramatic crime series, uh, Catching a Serial Killer. I had watched one probably about two months ago on Sam Little, and it was, um, I think I talked about it here, pretty disturbing. Um, but what came to my attention yesterday was that there was one on Bruce MacArthur, wow. a serial killer in Toronto. Yes, um, and the, it, you know, for us here, that's pretty close to home because that was all over our news for the longest time. And, um, you know, everybody in our, um, in the village, the, our sort of mm -hmm. gay village in, in, mm -hmm. in Toronto, w were aware people were disappearing yes. for a long time. And it was really disturbing, I think, especially because the police appeared to be useless. The in, only people in, that didn't know people were disappearing were the police. Yeah. Yes. Right. And they, um, and the, you know, and they really weren't taking appropriate action. And was that because they're homophobic? I don't know. Maybe. Oh, definitely. Um, um, it, this show, it, it, you can see it in this documentary. And it's not really a documentary. It's about an hour and a half. And it's, you know, part of a long, longer series, it, it appears. I, like I said, I, I didn't realize it was going to, going to be a series. Um, I suppose there's some other killers they focus on. But um, it's done with all the kind of, you know, you've got a journalist, you've got a representative from the community, you have another journalist, you have some two cops. You know, I suppose the police kind of have to agree to do these shows. I didn't think it was smart for them. But I guess they're going to take a chance at trying to rebrand their involvement in it. Well, I mean, it's going to be tough to rebrand their involvement. Um, they they blew the mission for a really long time. Well, they blew it even. Um, it's it's pretty shocking. Um, so one thing, it was very bizarre to see Toronto featured in one of these uh, formats of a crime series. It just was so weird to see all the streets, you know, that I've lived on many years on the east side and hung out in and all being portrayed. And... Um, talking about Zippers Club, where I've spent many hours dancing late at night. And just these places being on this American TV show. It just, it was kind of freaky. 
kind of depressing and also kind of exhilarating at the same time, for lack of a better word. So they go through this timeline um, where really, I guess, the first missing persons that they would agree to have noticed at all because he's confessed to the killing was in 2010. However, they began this project because someone called them up and said, they said, one, there was a cannibal in the, uh, in the village and they'd found them online and they were communicating with them. And this was a person from um, Sweden. So one of the cops went to Sweden, found this guy, traced their, um, uh, their computer ID number. And it turned out that they did catch a pedophile and child pornography person. They did who they thought they were looking for the guy that had killed um, a couple of these men. At one, so they make this project called Project Houston, and it's for Houston we have a problem, um, which I doesn't see. sound good at all, um, as they are denying the fact that there's a serial killer um, in the village, in this neighborhood between Young Street and Church, basically, or Jarvis, between Wellesley and, um, I'll say as far as Queen, and um, if you're in the Toronto area, you, you know the area well. Um, so they interviewed MacArthur in 2013. I had no idea. The police? Yep. Yeah, I know that. And he knew two of the victims. And they let him walk out the door. Um, because they didn't have, they thought he was just a witness. I was pretty fucking pissed off about that. Yeah, and um, for those who aren't aware of the case, he was a, a landscaper and a gardener. And uh, body parts have been found in like urns um and planters and it's it's pretty disturbing the whole the whole sordid story it is disturbing um he hid the bodies in in his yeah his customer's garden now i always feel that my theory is that he resented them as much as he resented the people he was killing i think he since he lost his heteronormative lifestyle because someone outed him as sleeping with a guy to his wife and then his marriage fell apart. Yeah, I, I, there was some juicy information that I didn't know about. And um, then he kind of, his marriage dissolved. And I always felt like he really resented that yuppie lifestyle. And so he was really sticking it to the people that he buried the bodies in. Um, we did talk about this case, I think, in one of our, maybe our third or fourth podcast, if I remember correctly. Or at least I dreamed we did. We may not have, but I dreamed we did. Okay. And, um, and we might have. Because might I, have. I could tell you, I have no idea what we've talked I try, about. <laughs> I try really hard to keep track of what we've talked about. I try. I've often um, thought it would be really smart for us to keep like a spreadsheet with these are the topics and the timeline and this is the episode and all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I, don't but I've, I can't, I'm not organized enough <laughs> to do it. I'm barely organized enough to say that this is episode 104. Right. Well, I kept my notes for a long time. I was going to try and write that up. But then I just decided, no, that's not that's not my job either. That's not anybody's job unless you're into doing that. So you should really want to nerd out on that on that level. Um, so on October thirty first, two thousand and one, I got this from the show on Oxygen Network as well as a CBC site. Um, he assaults a man in the man's home. He sneaks into their home or he's with that person and gets arrested. And he gets charged with assault, and he's monitored by psychiatrists for for his behavior and they analyze him and he goes to court and he's sentenced to one count of assault he gets two years community service and is banned from the village that's in 2001 wow 
Um, it was on Halloween, which is kind of noteworthy. Um, so he was sentenced in 2003. He's not allowed to go back. He's banned from the village for a couple of years, I guess. Obviously, he was allowed back in in some way. And they expunged his record in the, the Parole Board of Canada. Wow. Um, he had killed three people by then that we know of. Um, I'm not convinced he hasn't killed many other people before when he lived with us, when he was married. I just don't believe that he woke up one day and snapped and became a serial killer. I think he was always, always disturbed. And um, his son has some issues. He's voyeurism. He's been arrested for voyeurism. Um, they did touch on his, um, on MacArthur's family on the farm that his dad was an abuser. Um, they didn't reveal a lot about what that happened, but there was something really creepy. There was a really good interview with one of his ex-lovers, and he's in shadows. He doesn't reveal himself. And he talks about how he'd been hooking up with MacArthur over the years, kind of dating him, described himself as an ex-boyfriend. And then one time MacArthur meets him in this red van, and they, he has a fur coat in the van, where I'm like, oh my God, why is there a fur coat in the, in the van? And he says, hey, I want you to lay on that. They're making out. And then the next thing you know, he starts to choke this boyfriend. And he gets away, obviously, because he's on the TV show and, and talks about uh, he had a camera on his own van, the guy, that, the victim, and he follows MacArthur and calls 911. And it's a great scene of this guy having a camera, a dash cam, in his car following MacArthur. So I'm like, who has a dash cam in their car? Apparently and lots of, of people. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. So yeah, yeah, it's a he, thing. It's a thing. So it's amazing because God love him. He's following this guy and trying to catch him, and he's on the phone with 911. So they knew that too. And I mean, there's so many things where these, you know what, when they interview him, the two cops that were on the show, they just didn't, they didn't help themselves. It's obvious that they were racist, sexist, and homophobic. And I feel bad even saying that about them in one, on one level, because, okay, I'm just assuming that. No, there's no other explanation. It's plain as day that they did not give a shit about the neighborhood. And of course, like First Nations women or sex workers, this guy was killing people that he hated and he knew everybody else hated. He knew nobody would care. Um, it's really sad because many of his victims were immigrants to Canada or refugees. They came to Canada believing they were going to a good place and where they could be come out and live their lifestyle and live legitimately and authentically. And it's just cruel. The other person they interview in this documentary, which is totally worth watching, if you can find it, Eugene, it's so good, was one of the women whose houses he buried the bones in. Because I think that what we talked about on an older episode was whether or not you would keep owning that house. And I said, I would mm. keep the house and I would honor the graves of the people. And, you know, it wasn't their fault that they were buried there. It was his fault. So she's very upfront about that. She's pretty disturbed, of course. Her sister lived next door to his sister in a cottage. And that's how they were hooked up as, as a client. So he built all these clients off based of the small town he grew up in in Ontario, in Toronto. And um, he, buried, he buried at least five people in her house. And they were in these giant planters. And she recalled that he would sometimes take his lunch and bring these planters out around the picnic basket with the, the picnic table with them to look at his plants. But unbeknownst to her, he was hanging out with his friends. She's amazing because 
she was classic Canadian. It was almost like, because it's a terrible topic, it's hard to find any humor. But for some reason, this woman did make me laugh because she was so Canadian in the way she spoke and her mannerisms. And then she said something like, there he was. I would be watering these plants. And I had no idea anybody was, you know, that the bones were there, that these remains were there. And she was, and what was he saving them for? He was keeping them in these planters for his, for his whatever. And I did laugh because it was so pure of heart that there is no name for what he was doing. We mm. don't have a name for his whatever. Um, what a compelling um, series. A compelling with the Sam Little. It was very good. Definitely in the format of tabloid. Absolutely. Mm. But if you can stand it, it's really worth it. Yeah. I think I may need a break from true crime for a yeah, little while. Yeah, you might, huh? I, We've uh, seen a lot of true you. crime this in the last year. And it is very compelling and it draws you in and some of it's very, very well done. Uh, I think the one that, that, uh, that we watched, um, uh, uh, about, uh, about the fellow up in Minden, um, what was that one called? Uh, uh, Harold, Harold's heaven. Oh yeah. yeah. I think comedy. that, that one, the comedy yeah, true crime. That's right. That one added, um, uh, some relief. To, to that whole genre for me. Uh, but I think at this point, I may need a little break for a bit. Yeah. Well, it's a lifelong passion for me. I've always been interested in it. And I, I, I wouldn't, you know, there's many times where I watch all kinds of comedies and happy movies, love stories and adventure and coming of age. Uh, you know, I like a variety in my diet of viewing. And, um, but the crime stories are a passion of mine, you know, and I've gone to a few court cases. So, um, you know, and seen them played out in court some of these guys. So it is a passion of mine. And um, if you're into finding out about this kind of person, I mean, I think we need to know a bit more about him. We need a Mindhunter on this guy. Uh, episode of Mindhunter on this because um, he had this fur coat was a recurring motif. And I could not help but think of Psycho. I mean, this was like ugh, a Psycho story. Was it his mother's fur coat? Did it remind him of his parents? Mm. How did that play out? Apparently, he had photos of the dead people on his computer that they found. I will give the cop this. He found the deleted photos on the computer. So they did one thing good. And um, they eventually did find this guy. Um, yes, they even, did. Even though he had been tied to people. In 2017, in December, they said there's no evidence of a serial killer. Meanwhile... The last victim had died in June 2017. So there's just one denial after another. And the problem with denial is it's unconscious. And no one wants to wake up and say, I'm shitty at my job. So I'm sure for the cops, they're not going to admit that they made mistakes over and over and over again for 10 years. Yeah. And God knows who. So after this, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to look into missing persons in Ontario before these murders. Because I've got to believe that he did some of them. Anyway, there were so many missing persons, it was depressing. And Ontario missing persons, there's thousands of people. It's wow. horrible. So depressing. So, no wonder they can't figure it out because it's kind of overwhelming. Um, what's something else here? What else did I watch or think about? Mm -hmm. I know I watched something else, but God knows where my notes are. Hmm. Well, we haven't been watching really all that much except for um, our our attempt to, to go all the way through Homicide Life on the Street. Right. 
right in in full again and um thoroughly enjoying that it's surprising me episode after episode just how creative the show really was um how it actually existed uh for several seasons is beyond me because um it's just not the usual fare and it it didn't fit in it just it slipped through the cracks I often think that about music. Really, really good music slips through the cracks sometimes. The music business filters out a lot of it because it doesn't it doesn't fit in with um, uh, what they believe they can sell, right? Well, yeah, if you go for corporate mainstream sources, you're going to miss a lot of things. You do have to get out there and, and do work to find things. That's what's so great when you have a community of, of fans yeah. is you find so much more music. You know, I was watching... Uh, surfing on YouTube one day, and I and I stumbled across a, an interview with Roger McGuinn, and he was talking about uh, the recording of their first album, and he was the only one of the birds who was allowed to participate in that album. Yeah. Uh, to play on it is what you I mean. mean. It, oh, so they had session musicians. They had uh, the Wrecking Crew. Oh, like the Monkees. Um, no, there's there's a group known as the as the Wrecking Crew, okay. who are the backup musicians on thousands of hits. Okay. Okay, and so the the Birds were the front people. They did the singing. Um, Roger McGuinn was allowed to play guitar on it because he had that signature riff um, in Mister Tambourine Man, um, and he had done a lot of studio work. But the the wrecking crew basically they're the hit makers and so i i found out that many many pop musicians the singer is the front person sometimes because they think they can sell that front person right yeah right and yeah. they have they bring in this band in the background who know all the all the cool riffs and how to make a a song into a hit um and and McGuinn's comments about it were really interesting First of all, he said the other guys in the band were right pissed. And of course right. they were because, right. you know, they, they were musicians and they wanted to play on it as well. But he also made the comment that um, they did the album in a remarkably short period of time. And he mentioned an, another album or song that they did, and it took them something like 90 takes uh, in order to do it. But with these guys the the super pro studio musicians they could come in and knock off an album in, in no time because sure. time is money after all yeah yeah um, but it really says a lot about the business of of music are the are they was he american roger McGuinn, I, yes. I know the i know the session musicians were american oh i see i didn't know he's american did they do that in britain or india or other i don't know about other places but i know that there was uh a couple of groups, or there were a couple of groups of musicians. I believe that there was the group who played all the Motown sessions. Right. So no matter who you listen to on Motown, you're really listening to the same band. Sure. sure. Right. Uh, with different front people. Right. And um, as well, they they did it on on many many other sessions uh, on the West Coast as well. Well, you're reminding me of something. Um, a friend of mine, Malcolm, who I wanted to mention anyway, a friend of mine from online blogging, I mentioned that I was going to go and meet him this week. But mm-hmm. he had posted on Facebook last week, who's your favorite groups? Now, I listed a whole bunch of people. It wasn't until I listed them afterwards that I think he meant groups, not bands. 
because I listed bands and groups. So what's the difference between a group and a band? Or the yeah, what's the difference between a group and a band? Right. Are the group the front people of it, or is it the same thing? And I actually meant to ask him that on the weekend, and I completely forgot. I see. Um, I should go back on there. But is there a difference between when you say group or band? I, I took them as interchangeable. But then when I saw other people's comments, they were listing off the Temptations, the Supremes. I put the Supremes on mine, too. But I also put Nine Inch Nails and R.E.M. So I, I went all over the place of what were, I thought, my favorite bands slash groups. So I don't know. Is there a difference between groups and bands? And would that be that the Birds were a group and the band was the hired studio band? And did that come out of Motown where you had all the, the singers, like the Temptations, and they did their, you know, performance, and then that studio band was the main well, the, 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 the deal with a lot of the pop music is that, is that the people that they bring in to play on it, uh, and some of these people have played on so many hits, it's staggering. Yeah. Um, I'll see if I can get a list of, uh, of all the records that the, that the Wrecking Crew played on. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really a stunning list of, yeah. of music because it's, I mean, it's a business. Yeah. It is a business, and these guys, their job was hit making. Yeah, and I, I think that happened in a lot of British Invasion stuff too. Or well, maybe sure, not like Phil, invasion, Phil Spector is another another yeah. example, um, in which, and Daniel Lanois, I would say, is yet another example of someone in which the producer is king. Yeah. Right. The the producer has the sound. And well, Moses the, was telling us that too. Remember that it really comes down to his relationship with the producer and the engineer. Yeah. Now, it, now in my graphic novel. Yeah. Um, uh, in uh, uh, the final segment, the final episode of the uh, or issue of the graphic novel, which will be going to print very soon. Good. Um, issue number seven. Um, uh, the band that I made up, NPK, the New Polka Kings, go into the studio uh, because their their manager, Bananas Foster, got them a, got them a record contract, and they they go into the studio, and um, I created the an archetype of the greasiest cokehead producer you could you could ever want to imagine, right, um, and. He, he wants to like, you know, he wants to bring in strings and he doesn't want them to use their songs. He wants to, uh, he's got a list of songs for them to learn. And, you know, the, the, the guys in the band, they're, they're in it for the music and they don't like this. Suddenly their product. Right. Um, and it breaks them. Yeah. Fin finally in the, in the graphic novel, finally it breaks them. And, uh, and, uh, the, uh, um, the concertina player statue um, loses it and punches out the producer and, and sort of ends his career in the, in the music mm -hmm. business. Wow. And that will be available soon. Good. Fantastic. And congratulations. And I look forward to seeing it. Uh, you know, I'm um, really, I'm mostly looking forward to uh, completing it because it's been a, a two year effort to do seven issues of this and it's something that i think jacob and i are both very proud of um right. although it's uh its level of popularity is as usual very very low. well i i think uh, you have a distribution blank i think it really has to come down to some maybe finding some way of distributing you know getting press you need press 
uh, maybe that's it. I had thought that, that, you know, how could you go wrong with a graphic novel about a washed up accordion player who gets a job in a, in a polka punk band? It right. seemed like a hit concept sure. to me. Turns sure. out it, it wasn't the case. Well, you don't know yet. I think you need an agent and a distributor. <sighs> yes. That's my opinion. In any case, hey. we're gonna get we're gonna get episode uh, seven or issue seven out really Good. soon, Good. and it will be available by writing to us. And you can write to us about that or anything else um, at uh, theagency.podcast at gmail.com. We love getting mail. Yes, we do. And I wanted to add that I had a great trip to Michigan to visit Malcolm and interview him for my documentary. He, I'm the first person he met online. He's never met anybody from online before. Wow. And now, I mean, I've obviously met dozens. But um, we had a really good interview and a lovely dinner at a steakhouse in Fenton, Michigan. And, um, you know, onward and forward for that project. I hope to put together a little trailer in the next couple of days. That's okay. it. And he had the blog Pop Culture Dish. I met him blogging, and then he had Diversity Inc., where he did something very progressive. He had all these different political um, perspectives come on and put posts on this one blog. It was really good, and it's too bad we don't have that now. And speaking of meeting online people, we've got an interview today with a friend of mine, John Vanderheide, professor in London, Ontario, and uh, that's coming up real soon, who I've known from online for about... 25 years. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> makes us, makes me think we've been around for a while. Yeah, that's right. So shall we go to that? Let's go to that right now. All right. Hey, John, I'm just going to tell our listeners a little bit about you, how we met. Sounds great. Good. We have John Vanderheide here today. And, um, I met John on the Cormac McCarthy forum very many years ago. I can't even believe it in the 1990s. <laughs> and I think officially you are the first person I met in person from online experiences. And we met in the parking lot of, a, of a, where you worked in Calgary. And we had a great chat. And I, I don't know if we had lunch that day, but we've shared many meals over the years. We certainly have. And I forgot that the first time we met was in Calgary. Yes, it was. Um, I might need you to lean into your mic a little bit more. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, that's beautiful. You sound great there. Um, so, John, Eugene is obviously here with us, and you're meeting Eugene for the first time. Yes. And you guys say You know, hi. I was on that, that Cormac McCarthy forum for a brief period as well yes, back were. a million years ago. Yes, you were. Um, but I just, I really couldn't talk about the same book for 30 years. So, uh, <laughs> I left it to you folks. <laughs> and I see, I guess that's what makes some people philosophers. <laughs> okay, so it, basically I should say that I'm hoping we can talk to John today about uh, philosophy. You're a professional philosopher. You're an academic. You are probably one of the most inspiring people I've ever met uh, with a twist of a turn and a thought or idea. And I'm pretty excited to have you here. Um, maybe we should say, what is philosophy and why, uh, you know, what is philosophy to you? Wow, that's a huge question. Good, um, there. <laughs> that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know if I would actually consider myself a philosopher. Okay. Um, maybe kind of a bastard cousin to philosophy. <laughs> 
my, fair. my training is in a kind of a field called theory and criticism, uh, which sort of like is descended from a, a bunch of different kinds of traditional European philosophies, but has gone on to become a bunch of other things. So, um, you know, theory and criticism sort of arose as a, you know, noxious weed in <laughs> the Anglo academic community, you know, in the 80s or something like that, or yeah. late 70s. Yeah. Um, as a kind of an importation of a few different kinds of um, European philosophical traditions, maybe like chronologically speaking, the first would be, um, you know, the Frankfurt School mm -hmm. of Thought. So uh, coming out of a long tradition of German philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, kind of the second sort of like impetus to the development of theory was probably, you know, in the 1960s um, in France, you know, during Definitely. the heydays of May 68 with, you know, your Foucaults and your Rigores and your Deleuze's and stuff like that. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Lacan, so, yeah. Yeah, Lacan, exactly. Yeah. So theory is sort of like it was, I think it probably, you know, grew up in English departments. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was the way in which um, English professors or, you know, professional literary critics um, were looking for new methodologies or something like that. And then it kind of became its own thing um, and gave birth to all the things that are plaguing our society today. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, um, you, know, you know, that's true. I guess that engages a lot. In, <laughs> well, hang in on, hang on. We, we, yeah. which things? Oh which yeah, which things? things? Let's be specific. Well, I'm kind of, cheekily sort of thinking about the way in which um, like right-wing media and you know the states and in Canada is all up about you know what they call critical race theory mm -hmm. um, which is um, I'm not really even sure you know that's a thing in the academy so much like I uh, I think um, you know some somebody once texted me out of the blue, um, you know, asking me about CRT. And I said, what's that? Um, <laughs> and so, but yeah, like in the academy, I, I, at least in my own experience, um, you know, racial politics and racial theories and um, uh, criticism uh, that sort of um, leads or, or, or um, <clears throat> uh, sort of is focused on the racial elements of, you know, whatever cultural artifact they're looking at. Right. And I, I think it, I, I'm going to just jump in here and say the extends. So critical race theory, I would say, is analyzing the laws that pertain to civil rights. And I would say someone like, we could look at, um, oh, people who have animal rights issues, philosophers or um, academics talking about animal rights, moral rights, um, they might be a cousin to that. Judith Butler might be a cousin to that with gender identity. I think they're exactly, all coming yes. out of a similar place of analyzing what we have labeled each other and our roles in society, and they're contesting it, for better or for worse. Uh, yeah, I agree 100%. And it, it you know, um, in, some, in some ways, like um, class-based analysis mm -hmm. was the first, you know, historical form of... Um, 
identity politics. But right, I was going to say Marxism. Independent of that, of course, yep. is feminism and mm -hmm. um, also independent of that or semi-autonomous from all of these things are, um, you know, fields that um, as an academic I, I love today, you know, like Black studies or Indigenous studies and um, all the different kinds of um, racialized sort of pol political um, identity forms. Mm -hmm. Well, I think on a lighter note, um, something that maybe you and I have in common, yeah, it doesn't have to be that heavy, those discussions, because I love all that stuff too, yeah. um, is that I think something you and I have in common is maybe taking a very in-depth look at popular culture. And that might be part of how you could um, portray critical theory in academia as well. Um, you know, people are analyzing and writing very generative pieces about things that you that maybe we didn't realize that there would be so much in in Riverdale the TV show or right. Simpsons or or Cormac McCarthy um, people have taken Cormac McCarthy what used to be a very central Christian view of Cormac McCarthy's work or a nihilistic view of Cormac McCarthy's work now has expanded all over the place you could talk about anything that's totally true yeah um, myself I, I mean I spend a lot of time you know, I continue to spend a lot of time thinking and writing about Cormac McCarthy, but I'm also very interested in um, television comedy. Mm -hmm. um, and the way, uh, you know, there's, I guess, like, in my own sort of, like, um, practice or whatever, I, I kind of come out of a Frankfurt School sort of mode of thinking. And, you know, my the bedrock of my thinking is this fellow named Walter Benjamin, who was a German Jewish mm -hmm. critic living at, you know, the turn of the 20th century. And his analysis of the way art has transformed since the advent of new media like radio and um, film, uh, he wasn't really alive long enough to see television sort of come into its right. own. But yeah, so, and there's incredible new work um, being done in that kind of tradition of, you know, Benjamin's conception of technological reproducibility or the way we can now, you know, it used to be that you had to go to art, right? If you wanted mm -hmm. to see a painting, you had to go to the place where it was at, which was often, you know, a church or, or a gallery or something like that. Um, but now we bring art to ourselves via these um, new media. Um, and that changes the very nature of art, according to Benjamin. So, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff going on in contemporary comedy studies that sort of looks at the way comedy was one of the first sort of artistic forms to really adapt to things like film and uh, especially film, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, so when Benjamin was thinking about the utopian potentials of film, um, he turned to, you know, Charlie Chaplin mm -hmm. and um, the early Mickey Mouse cartoons. You know, so all of those those issues are really interesting and um, there's great contemporary work being done. Um, there's a, I think she's American. Uh, her name is Sian Ingai. Uh, she talks about, or she's written about how the gimmick works in comedy and how the gimmick is also a kind of, you know, a, a sort of cheesy technology that um, we live by in our, you know, modern societies and stuff like that. So there's, yeah, there's lots of uh, really interesting stuff being done. Yeah, that's true. I guess the gimmick's also a signpost. 
it's like a bright arrow telling you what's uh, what we're what we care about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and I mean everything <laughs> and everyone in a way sort of has to have a kind of a gimmick, you know, mm -hmm. like even in academic or um, philosophical context, right? Like as a you know, my gimmick is that I'm a Cormac McCarthy scholar, or my gimmick is that I'm a scholar of, you know, television comedy after Seinfeld or something like that. Right. My gimmick is I'm in the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Eugene's is, what's yours? That he's I, I don't way. know, but I was just thinking the way you were using gimmick, um, it's like the way Utah Phillips used the word gaff. You got to have a gaff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is the same you're right and and co uh, comedians and comics were you know the first to sort of understand that i think you know comedy the way comedy developed in you know in north america was really interesting and especially like in 19 in the 19th century when we had you know the industrial revolution was kicking off into full swing um and uh, our lives were more and more governed by kind of me mechanical clock time. Um, comedy somehow managed to transform itself. You know, we used to have like organic comedies where, you know, you had to follow the plot all the way through. But, you know, um, as comedy sort of moved into the popular theater in the States, whether, you know, that be the, you know, forms like the minstrel show or not, um, mm. you, you'd have not like full-blown comic uh, dramatic narratives being, um, you know, um, presented, but you would have like tiny little um, segments. So, you know, you'd have a song and then mm. you'd have a funny dialogue and then you'd have something else, you know, it's, it's almost as if um, they already knew in the 19th century what was going to happen to our attention spans. <laughs> mm. Well, I can think in the most literal way of early film is Harold Lloyd hanging on a clock. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right? That's the most <laughs> obvious way they could play with time. And um, <laughs> then you've got, I love time travel movies where the gimmick is sometimes, sometimes it's quite serious, but it's also great when the time travel happens and some bizarre comedy happens. <laughs> Do you have you know, or, or what about the time in Pulp Fiction where we see those two guys in shorts? We see... Uh, Samuel Jackson and Sean Travolta in these ridiculous shorts and we don't know why they're there and then we eventually find out the punchline is the time cut as we find out why they're there that's right yeah Get-ups, you know so comedy definitely does address time an awful lot yes absolutely yeah um, the example that came to my mind um, was I'm a banjo player and we look back at the historic uh, banjo player Uncle Dave Mason okay. uh, as for his banjo but when you see the existing film of the guy you see that the music is just one part of it he does kicks he does banjo <laughs> tricks spinning his <laughs> instrument he dances whatever it takes to get to the audience he does yeah. so it's it's not like we look at it now um, we, we, we parse it, right? We look at it as, well, the music. I'm a serious banjo player. I play old time music, right? But, but then it's, it's in the larger uh, box of entertainment. Absolutely, oh, yeah, point. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that kind of reminds me of some things that are happening in, in psychology about the psychology of music. Um, mm. And, you know, some 
psychologists and I'm maybe not entirely accurate in this, but think that, you know, like consciousness develops in infants really through kind of musical means. Um, but, but the music that takes place between caregiver and infant um, it is a multimedia experience. <laughs> so, you know, you, sure. you talk, to, you talk to an infant, but obviously, you know, the sense of what you're saying doesn't matter. It's really the kind of, um, it's sort of the prosodic qualities, you know, your sing song voice and that, and that, um, and that sort of engages um, the infant. They, they, there's some really interesting experience, uh, experiments where um, you have an infant in one room uh, in front of a kind of a, a television or a camera and their caregiver in another room and you know when the feed is live the infants like respond to the caregiver almost as you know in a normal sense but they can immediately tell when the feed stops being live oh and wow just becomes a recording oh. so, yeah so yeah so um uh, but but eugene i thought you played the accordion not the banjo well i play the button accordion and i play claw hammer banjo and i had this idea that at 60 was the right time to learn old-time fiddle oh that's great <laughs> so I've, I've spent the pandemic um with a with a fiddle and now i've found myself an ottawa valley style fiddle teacher and i'm really taking it seriously because I, I figure i still have time to learn it <laughs> that's of course yes that's that's wonderful well john's a musician too yeah i'm i signed up for some um online guitar course um, oh you did well, yeah and but the guitar teacher i think is actually he, he teaches guitar uh, like banjo or something so it's like bluegrass um type of guitar but he, he you know i think he's a banjo player as well so the things that he teaches are both useful for banjo and guitar, but I've <laughs> never picked up a banjo myself. It's uh, a drum. There's a, there's a guy, <laughs> it is a drum on a stick, in fact. Um, and I like, once you start with, with old time banjo in particular, uh, once you think of it as a, as a percussion instrument, you start to make serious progress. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a guy who, he's a neuroscientist, who's studied how babies learn and he's taken his neuroscience work and he's, his workshop is teaching music and he's developed a business teaching people how to, well, he calls his company Brainjo, um, how, to, <laughs> how to learn banjo, but also fiddle and other <laughs> instruments based on how he discovered children learn. It's, it's quite interesting. And wow. he has like a lot of real practical tips for practice. For instance, uh, practice in 15 minute sessions instead of two hour sessions. Yes. Right. Just mm. do lots of them. Yep. Practice right before you go to bed so that um, your brain starts, it triggers your brain to start working on it during your dream state. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's great advice. Hey, what do you, what do you, what is the comedy that you're really into right now that's kind of got you engaged in, in one question, and why is critical thinking important today besides politics? Um, well, my, like, my work on television comedy sort of is like a way for me to, 
um, uh, exploit, I guess, my uncritical love of um, Seinfeld. So, <laughs> so I've, I've often kind of, you know, it's often said, or you, you know, Google it, Seinfeld changed television. Yeah. Okay, but how did it do that? Oh. Um, so the way, what, what I'm kind of interested in is kind of thinking about how Seinfeld kind of um, really profoundly changed the sitcom um, and sort of almost invented a kind of new genre of sitcom that now is sort of like almost everywhere. Mm. So the way, the way I'm, you know, the, the way um, I'm sort of thinking about these ideas is, you know, going back to the creators of Seinfeld, who are they? Well, they're Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David. Mm -hmm. What were they before? Well, they were stand-up comedians, you know, like maybe Larry David worked a little bit in television. Um, Jerry Seinfeld had a short role on Benson or something like that. But both of them as sort of comedians were stand-ups. And in, in stand-up comedy, again, like kind of going back to the previous point, um, what matters are, is not like long drawn out narratives, but quick rapid fire, you know, jokes, um, you know, and you have to always be transitioning from one joke to another. So stand-up is a kind of a non-narrative form, mm -hmm. even, even if stand-ups obviously tell stories. Um, but overall, it doesn't add up to one single story. Mm -hmm. And so... There, there's a really interesting book kind of theorizing stand-up comedy and uh, to me anyways, the, and the author has a kind of a theory that um, in the idea, you know, he, he sort of like wonders what the ideal form of stand-up is and the ideal form is a kind, uh, and he calls stand-up a kind of an apocalyptic genre because the ideal of stand-up is that you have constant unanimous laughter all the time, right? So it's not about keeping the audience silent while you unravel, you know, something and then you get a laugh. No, they should be laughing all the time. Mm. Um, so this kind of uh, ideal of, you know, constant unanimous laughter requires constant joking all the time. So... I feel like, you know, and Mitchell Hurwitz, the, uh, you know, the creator of Arrested Development, for example, said that, you know, before Seinfeld, you might have had a sitcom where there was eight scenes or something like that in the entire show, in the entire 22 minutes. Um, but Seinfeld, you would get like, all of a sudden, they figured out a way to do 30 scenes, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, you know, Mitchell Hurwitz was, of course, proud that in classic Arrested Development episodes, you'd have 60 scenes. So wow. it's like the speeding up of scenic changes is is a result of a kind of a stand-up sensibility. And mm. so so I'm really interested in the way um, stand-up has kind of changed the sitcom. Yeah, that's was, interesting. Go ahead. Was uh, Seinfeld uh, filmed before an audience or did it have a laugh track? It was filmed before a live studio audience. And um, if you um, have no life like me and you watch <laughs> every episode, you know, a hundred times over, uh, you, you start to actually recognize <laughs> the, the laughs of people. Oh, God, that's funny. Every week. 
That's no, funny. That's very funny. Yes. <laughs> wow. You know, I watched Seinfeld once. It was my life. And we would debrief with friends that watched it every week. But I, I've never watched it again. Not even, I'll see it on TV and I don't look. Because oh. <laughs> it's in this precious universe for me. <laughs> the other thing about Seinfeld and stand-up comics is that you're right that it had that rapid fire was always funny, but it also did something profound that seemed to mess with time and mess with meaning was the callback. Absolutely, yeah. The callbacks are the yeah. freakiest callbacks in Seinfeld. I, sometimes I would be in awe for hours afterwards of the callback. Do you have an example, Candy? Um, I don't off the top of my head, um, but basically there'd be a premise that would start. The one that I do think of is that when Seinfeld and, and Elaine, they had not been dating anymore, but they went to bed together again. And I guess they had flirted. They said, well, let's do a, you know, what are you doing today? Oh, a little of this, a little of that. And then they end up sleeping together. And at the end, somebody comes over like Cosmo or something, right? Comes, uh, he comes rushing the door and they go, what did you do today? A little of this, a little of that. And a little and, of the other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so um, that would be one kind of callback. That's not even the best one, although that was pretty funny. It still stands out in my mind. But um, yeah, they just did so many things where it was like, because so much happens, the callback is really deep. It's hidden. You're yes. not going to have any idea of what that callback's going to be. I guess it's like uh, Bruce Willis in Die Hard. The second, it's like Chekhov. If there's a gun in the first act, it has to go off by the end of the play. And in Die Hard, the guy tells him, oh, for jet lag, you take your shoes off and rub your toes in the carpet. I remember thinking, don't do it, don't do it. And of course, the rest of the movie is barefoot. And I, I've probably mentioned that as my Chekhov thing many times. Sorry to bore our listeners. But um, I think that's the callback is like that. It's the comedy's gun. Well, yeah, and you know, it's for, like, it's really interesting for me the way Seinfeld developed into itself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Larry David, you know, has gone on record saying a couple of things. And yeah. one thing was basically like, he, he didn't really like the way sitcoms didn't have a memory. So didn't have a what? A memory. Oh, a memory. Interesting. So, so like in one episode, yes. you know, Jerry dates somebody, but in the next episode, it's as if that never happened or something like that. Oh, right. So even from the very beginning, you know, um, Larry David sort of saw the um, comic potentials in, in what he would call, you know, history. Yes. Or Which is basically callback, right? Yep, yep. Um, and then he, you know, then, of course, there's a, a famous episode in, I don't know, the second season or something where he starts to do the individual plotting. So like the show originally was supposed to be about Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you watch the very first episodes, all the other characters are basically like, they function as a, as a chorus, uh -huh. right? you know, they just, you know, support Jerry and whatever narrative he's, he's embroiled in. Uh, but then of course, you know, they discover that, well, it's actually better to have separate plots and not to have a particular center in the show. Mm -hmm. And so the, but you know, what I find really cool is that the way they divided the show into parallel plots and, and not have a center um, is actually reminiscent of um, a kind of medieval comedy. Oh. You know, it's the, the French term would be fablio but maybe for English speakers, you know, the most famous example would be some of the more body of Chaucer's Canterbury tales, like the Miller's tale mm -hmm. or the Reeves tale. 
where you don't really have a you know a protagonist mm -hmm. but you have a bunch of characters who are all involved you know they're all pursuing their own agendas and you know comedy ensues so it's it's kind of neat that, that they kind of stumble onto a narrative form which also you know they has been around for a long long time you know, Definitely. I didn't. I didn't see a single episode of Seinfeld <laughs> until after it was finished. Oh yeah, yeah. There was a, a long period in which I watched very, very little TV, and it's much of the '90s, I think. Uh, so I had heard people, you know, at work, they were always talking about Seinfeld, and I thought, oh yeah, some comedy, you know. <laughs> and then after the fact, I I started watching it. It's like, oh. Well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, and the, there's other shows as well. Another one I'm re-watching now, um, not a comedy, although it does have comedic, comedic aspects, is Homicide Life on the Street. Okay. I never saw that when it came out. I had never heard of it. No idea. Right. Well, I watch lots of TV shows, and I did, I did over the years that were, you know, my parents' shows or something, that you, because of reruns. And I mean, that's the only time you would be able to catch up on shows is if you were out at night or doing things, you, you watch them on reruns when they become so big, they were syndicated. So yeah, I yeah. guess that's how Seinfeld happened. Uh, the funny thing about Seinfeld too is, you know, that first season, Jerry's such a terrible actor. It's, it's amazing that it was a successful show. And I think he would be the first, he would agree with me. Um, he yeah. definitely got better. But it, it did have to go much, on though. something else. Not much, not much. And I think he would agree, same as Larry David. He, he's he's slightly better, but he's not that great either because they're stand-up actors. Some stand-up yep. actors, they can really move into the acting world. But it took Seinfeld quite a while. A good year, I would say, a whole yeah, season. <laughs> well, uh, most of the time he talked, he looked like he was so embarrassed of even speaking these, these phony lines. Yeah. Or, yeah, or he would, you know, break out into a smile when... And you knew that it wasn't the character smiling, but it was... No, it was him smiling at his co-actors, right? Yeah. What else are you watching and analyzing? Well, I mean, I was just going to say the other great... I mean, yeah. the other great thing that I love about Seinfeld, besides sort of the way it developed into this interesting form with parallel plots inter interweaving, um, is that, you know, of course, another kind of cliche is that all the characters are intensely unlikable. Yes, um, and so I think that has also, you know, cringe comedy has definitely become a kind of yeah. thing. So, you know, um, to me, like one of the best shows, although it was canceled after three seasons of, you know, let's say the 2010s was um, the show called Another Period. Oh, I never saw it. Um, it's a, it's a his, like, um, it's a historical setting. So it takes place in the States at around the turn of the, um, 20th century. So it's like in 1901 or something like that. So you have a lot of historical uh, personages appear, you know, Helen Keller or um, oh. or uh, Harry Houdini or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's like all of the characters are so incredibly unlikable <laughs> and yet it's absolutely hilarious oh wow uh, yeah it's, I... it's it's two um two comedians uh, natasha Legero and ricky lindholm oh wow um and they're they play sisters in a kind of um decadent you know um uh, aristocratic family and and so the whole family is, is sort of like arrested development you know you have a 
dysfunctional wealthy family who mm. are just terrible people <laughs> yeah. um, but it is so funny so i think cool. we have homework candy <laughs> i think we have homework i love hearing about new shows yes or missing shows the show that got away yeah that, that's and, definitely a show that got away uh gee cool but uh, yeah i mean i'm well, also watching it. a lot of anime lately which is are you yeah and there's some great um anime comedies like i'm currently sort of uh watching this anime which is on netflix called food wars oh i watched that it's, i think we talked about it food wars <laughs> food wars it's yeah, kind it's of insane. about like a it's so good it's so insane yeah i so, forgot about it actually i did start watching it <laughs> yeah it's really what really you funny. like about that uh, I like, <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> or hate, or hate love about it. I no, I I really just love it. Like it's, uh, it gives me like good ideas for cooking, um, but <laughs> it, it also bonus. Like the like the artwork is incredible. I love the way, um, you know, it's sort of like the, the every every scene is like a still picture, but the camera moves around the still picture. Oh. Um, I like the way the the characters sort of. You know the characters are kind of like high school students at an elite cooking school in Japan, <laughs> and so every episode is like this do or die challenge, and <laughs> and it, it you know like but also you know all, all the cooks are so good, so whenever anybody eats uh, their food, there are these hilarious and somewhat NSFW um, scenes of, you know, like uh, orgasmic enjoyment of the wow. food. So it's a kind of marriage <laughs> of food and sex that you might find in a, in a film like Tampopo or something like oh, that. Oh yeah. I, I'm not against either. <laughs> no. <laughs> are there any, are there any octopus? There, yes. In fact, the first episode makes reference to the I, famous painting. Um, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, um, and it's also extremely funny. Um, well, who knew? Yeah. I haven't watched anime in a long time, so that'll be kind of cool. Um, okay, and again, why would this kind of critical approach, why do we watch shows over and over again? What are we finding out? Well, that's Because you're not the only one, just because you're an academic, you're not the only one. Common people like me, I'll obsess <laughs> on a show and watch it again. Look at Eugene, homicide you twice. No, four no, I, times. I think I'm about I'm about my times. fourth time through, you know. Right. I would so, watch the whole thing again just to see the scene of Frank in his dress blues at Corsetti's funeral. Oh. I would watch the entire series just to see that wow. scene. Oh wow. The tragic loyalty scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there are probably a million different reasons for why we um and and they're all peculiar and singular to the individual. Why, <laughs> you know, it's it's familiar, I guess, yeah. on one hand. But you know, the really good shows, uh, like the really good books and the really good whatevers, um, bear up to repeated viewings. That's true. And they so have more to give us. It's yeah. So like you know, it's a work of art if it can endure past you know the first viewing or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's a saying that I learned from a long time ago from that novel by Milan Kundera, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a saying in German, einmal ist keinmal, one time is no time. You know, so if you do something once, it's like as if you did something 
yeah, as if you never did it at all. So, wow. you know, it's like Prince says, there's joy in repetition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mixing my references. I like it. <laughs> Any other hidden gems? We've got about four minutes left. Oh, okay. Um, hidden comedy gems. Um, I'm sure there are many. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed like um, um, uh, Superstore, which is on Netflix. Oh yeah, Superstore, that's a good one. That's pretty that's good. so cute. Um, you know, Parks and Rec. Oh yeah, that's, um, I'm a devotee. I'm a snob, so the British office, but not the American office. Okay. Oh, yeah. I can't watch the American office either. <laughs> I oh, never. Wow. American office, so I shouldn't. Uh, shouldn't or Steve Carell. Yeah. yeah. But the British one is really good. Yeah, it's so good. So good. So, yeah, it's, I, I remember yeah, it, the first time I, uh, the first time it was airing, I was watching it with my friend and he was curled up in his chair looking you know almost like through his hands because it was so painful oh it's painful yeah <laughs> <laughs> i guess that's an unlikable characters again so yeah. unlikable yeah yeah but somehow you know i don't know what it is like it's a strange sort of transmutation or miracle that you can kind of love you know a character that in real life you'd be like um stay away from me <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah and i guess it's almost like a reworking of the villain you know is that we do we do love them because they're not they're not we're not going to be their victims i guess we can just enjoy them plus there's an awful lot of us in sitcoms i remember reading esquire magazine or something like that that we watch sitcoms so we see who we are um, yes. You know, we're always relating to somebody in this in the in the show. Um, so even if they are unlikable, I mean, you know, definitely, there's no reason not to love people. So you kind of have to relate to Seinfeld because he's so picky about who he might love. <laughs> <laughs> and it just shows us how imperfect we are when we're supposed to try to be lovers. You know, we're supposed to be accepting of our friends and family and they are the opposite of that. The whole crew <laughs> are terrible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's also great uh, YouTube comedians like, um, I don't know if you've ever watched Chris Fleming's Gale character on YouTube. No, I have not. Or um, Liza Koshy has a show called um, uh, Liza on Demand in which she plays a kind of, you know, gig economy worker. She goes from uh -huh. job to job. It's, it's uh -huh. really, really good. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the idea. More homework. I know more homework. homework. And guess what, John? We need you to come back. <laughs> come back. Oh, sure. I'd yeah. We're at the end of our Zoom meeting time. Well, thank you so much. Thank uh, you so much. Andy and Eugene. It was a pleasure to meet you, Eugene. And great Enjoyed the conversation. Pleasure to meet you, too. Very much so. We should have plugged one of your books or something. <laughs> That's fine. I, I'm uh, really glad to, I'm really looking forward to actually seeing you in person. At some yeah, point. I'll see you in a, next week. Yeah, that's great. Okay. okay, talk to you soon. Bye.